0: Welcome to the Altruism Unplugged podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Walsh. Welcome to the second episode of Altruism Unplugged. Today's guest, we have Chef Nicholas Elmi, owner of restaurant Laurel, In the Valley Cocktail Bar in South Philadelphia, and Royal Boucherie in Old City. Laurel has been awarded four bells from award-winning critic Craig Laban, of Philadelphia Inquirer has been named number one restaurant in Philadelphia by Philadelphia Magazine. He has a top 25 new restaurant in GQ, named a semifinalist for the James Beard Foundation for best new restaurant in America. And Chef Elmi has six times been named a semifinalist for best chef mid Atlantic. He has worked in some of the top restaurants on the East Coast, including Lebec Finn, oceana Union Pacific and around the world, including Guy Savoy in Paris. Chef Elmi is a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America, where he is now an ambassador. He is also the winner of season eleven of Bravo's television series Top Chef. Thanks for coming on the show, Nick. Yeah, man, I'm excited to be here. Absolutely, you know you've clearly have had success in the restaurant industry, but also your deeds around the Philadelphia community and makes your name synonymous with generosity. Can you talk to us a little bit about your history regarding those efforts?
1: Well I think that um you know being in the restaurant community, once you start kind of sowing your seed and recognizing that, you know, you're you've become a bigger part of, of Philadelphia, you really want to start um giving back. And what happens inevitably in, in the restaurant world is you get asked to do, you know, 50 charities a year. Um, and unfortunately, I'm, I'm not very good at saying no to anybody. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, so especially the first couple of years that we were open for Laurel, and, you know, in turn, three years later, we opened uh, ITV or in the Valley. You know, we were doing two, sometimes three different charity events a month and it, and it's great you you feel you feel good about, about giving back but it's also like all right like i'm just showing up to these events and handing out little tiny plates of food and then bouncing kind of my wife took me to task and was like well instead of doing three events a month she's like why don't you find three events three charities that you actually really want to be involved with and instead of just popping in once a year and, and handing out food like figure out a way to get involved, figure out a way to help them raise money, figure out a way to tie in more chefs, try in more restaurants, uh, make a bigger impact. Uh, So it started off when I became um, the chef chair of uh, March of Dimes. And um, you know, my job was kind of to be an ambassador for March of Dimes. I would go around the city and all all my friends who were chefs and all the restaurants I knew would, would get together once a year. Uh, we'd have an event. I was in charge of kind of organizing everything and, and making sure that everyone's showing up. Everyone had what they needed. Everybody understood what the deal was. I think the first two years we did it, we raised like three hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars each year, and it was great. It, it, it felt good because we knew that the the you know the money that we were raising was going to a good cause. Matched Dimes, yeah, you know, you know, specifically for Philadelphia, uses that money to go towards the NICU at Jefferson. Um, but, How
0: did you guys raise that money? What did you guys come <laughs> together to do with all the chefs in Philadelphia? So the one we were doing for
1: Marshall Dimes, we would have like a big event at the Please Touch Museum where we would have like 500 people show up. Uh, we would sell tickets for 250 bucks or 350 bucks, whatever it was. Uh, they'd get a table. We would cook them food. They'd have a banquet reception where like all these chefs would have this little station where they would hand out little bites of food. Uh, we have a ward presentation. You know, we really took care of the chefs well, too. Uh, which is kind of what I was trying to transition into because a lot of times you kind of like, you, you get asked to do all these events and not only are you providing all of your food, but you're providing all of the labor, you're like all of the ingredients, all the equipment, uh, you know, like stupid little shit. Like, you know, if the, if the events downtown, it's like, you have to pay for your own parking every event you end up shelling out anywhere from like 500 to $1,000, um, and I and to make that's sure.
0: including taking care of the staff and all the people who exactly. are helping you guys it's, get it, prepa- it. all the food prepared and crazy. getting it to the event.
1: It gets crazy. And I was like, all right, well, you know, we raised $338,000 the first year of March of Dimes. And we only had 20 chefs who showed up, which was awesome. And I was like, oh, you know what we should start doing? You know, if for 20 chefs, if we spent $10,000 paying the chefs back, fi- like give them a $500 stipend, we're going to get better chefs to come do this event. And on top of that, like we can get, we started reaching out to different companies like uh, culinary companies and been like, we're going to have this huge event. Would you like to be a sponsor? All you have to do is provide us, you know, an apron that we can give to the chefs as a gift or clogs or a spoon. So we started giving, like giving back to the chefs for doing the event. We'd spend like seven to 10 grand for these chefs to show up to the event and We'd give them the money to pay for the food. We'd give them the money to park. We, we'd give them a, a gift to be there. We'd open up a bar for them so they're actually enjoying themselves. And we would get higher quality chefs. So in turn, we got higher quality people coming to the events. And in turn, the next year we raised like forty thousand more dollars. And it, it was nice because then we kind of applied that philosophy to Feastable a little bit. We were giving money back, giving chefs a stipend, pairing chefs together. You know, I think the first year that I was the um, when I was one of the chairs for Festival, we ended up raising like six hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars, and it's and it's fun and it's a great event, and I'm glad that they do it because it supports you know uh, live arts in Philadelphia, which you know I think is as far as I'm concerned, you know you don't have art and you don't have culture in your city, you don't have culture then you're not going to have a food scene, so it's it's important to me that we have a very robust art scene, um, but you know being part of Festival uh, isn't like. It really wasn't like it's not that my heart wasn't into it. No, I can say that my heart really wasn't into it. <laughs> it was just like, yeah. art, art's not like my thing, man. You know what I mean? Uh, and then I started hooking up with um, No Kid Hungry, which is more kind of closer to my ideals. You know, I mean, the idea being that, you know, one, we throw away 40% of the food that's produced in this country, and specifically in Philadelphia, one in six children. You know have what's called food insecurity meaning that they don't know when their next meal is coming from which is crazy um, so it's obviously you know the the the, the thing that we kind of harp on all the time at No Kid Hungry is, is childhood hunger is a solvable problem we have the means to make it disappear it's just a matter of organization um, I like being part of it it's a national uh, charity but all of the money we raise in Philadelphia stays in Philadelphia The first event we had a couple of years ago, we raised, uh, $13,000 and it was just me and five chefs cooking barbecue food for like a hundred people. And it was great. Um, we turned that money into the next year for our second event. We ended up raising $127,000. Um, it's pretty big growth from year one to two, you know, talking about 10 times growth like that, that felt pretty good. Uh, we were slated to. We were on track to raise about three hundred grand for our event this year in May, but you know, COVID, everything, we kind of had to take a backseat. So I think moving forward, I'm going to try to focus all my efforts on No Kid Hungry and kind of just like, and it gives on on top of that, it gives me a good reason to say no to everybody else. Um, I don't feel bad saying no to the rest of the charities now, saying that like nope, I put all my efforts towards X. You know, plus I usually like to be a dick and turn it around on them and be
0: like, do you want to donate? <laughs> you know, yeah. so. Bring it right back. Put it yeah. back on their plate. Yeah. <laughs> now that we're talking talk about it. we And we um, talked about you giving to No Kid Hungry. And one of the big reasons you decided to stick with them is because when you do raise that $13,000 or $50,000, you get to hear about and see where it goes to. Can you talk about some of the things that you've already done with them?
1: Yeah. I mean, No Kid Hungry will send us updates about what they used the money for. Um, which is which is nice because you don't get that with a lot of charities. It's like, oh, thanks for helping us raise a quarter of a million dollars or half a million dollars. We'll see you next year. And it's like, oh, that kind of feels disingenuous. Um, where no kid hungry will say to us, Oh, hey, just so you know, like we set up school lunch summer program. I mean a school breakfast summer program in West Philadelphia, and we we fed five thousand kids through the month of August. And it's like that feels good. You know where that money went. Or uh, we bought two new refrigerators for uh, a cafe at uh, this North Philadelphia elementary school because they didn't have enough refrigeration to serve fresh food. That's why they were doing all canned stuff. I was like, all right, well, here we go. Like we're actually making progress. Um, And as
0: you continue to work with those efforts and those fundraising people and the point of contacts in Philadelphia each year, I'm sure we'll get more efficient and more growth will come from that. Yeah,
1: no, theoretically. I mean, we're, we we want to keep plugging away at this. I mean, no kid hungry has been great as well. Uh, they tried making headway in Philadelphia probably about like five or 10 years ago and it didn't go so well. They had a couple of missteps with their events and then they stopped doing it. And then, you know, when, um, my wife actually turned me on to uh, my friend Madison Alpern, who had worked for No Kid Hungry. And I asked her, I was like, "Why aren't we doing it in Philly?" Like, I really want to find one charity that I can start, just like really, really working with. And the second I called the people from No Kid Hungry, like they gave me a train ticket down to DC. They brought me into their headquarters. They put me up for a couple nights in a hotel. They showed me all of the stuff that they have in DC. Their quarters are in our, their headquarters are in DC and New York. I got to meet everybody on the team. I got to start doing events with them right away. Uh, on top of that, we do a ton of advocacy. Uh, so I've actually gone to go to DC three times now, um, and we'll we'll walk around on Capitol Hill and go to different senators' office or state reps' office and talk about our efforts and what we're trying to do and how we need certain policies changed and whether it's you know uh, things that were happening on the farm bill back in like 2018 or, you know, other things that were going on with the snap program in 2019. It's like, you know, we, we get the opportunity to go to DC and kind of like argue our case in front of our state reps, um, our state senators. And it's, it's, it's pretty fun. Um, it's, it's also unbelievably informative. Like I never thought growing up, like I'd be the dude walking around Washington DC in a suit and tie like hanging out with my Senator being like, listen, bro, I need you to listen to me for five minutes. (laughs) And um, it's been, it's been pretty, yeah, it's been a pretty surreal experience so far, but uh, it's all because of them. It's all because like uh, they, they know the people that know the people that can get you in there. And uh, you know, I'm when, when you get me in front of somebody, I I have a a tendency to be pretty convincing. So that's kind of nice as well.
0: You know, it's easy to be convincing when you're passionate about what you're talking about. Yeah. When you're passionate and informed, it's like, it, it helps out a lot. Right. So with that said, we we came together. So that's why we had John. The Altroism Unplug podcast and Chef Nick came together to raise some money for No Kid Hungry. And what we're going to do moving forward from here is dedicate our time to do a virtual cooking demo via Chef Nick. And to qualify for that, we're going to do a minimum donation of $100. You'll be able to donate by going to my Instagram page. It'll be pinned up to the top. There'll be plenty of videos and more posts about it, about the specifics of the dinner. Uh, Nick, do you want to talk a little more about what you're doing there for the demo? Yeah, I think we're still trying to form the idea
1: of of what's going to happen. But, you know, through COVID, um, you know, I I took the first month or two of COVID off to actually like rest and relax and be with my family. But then I started getting antsy um, and started actually setting up these cooking and butchering demos, um, which are pretty cool. They can be fun. Uh, I've done a couple where we, we butcher pigs, we, we butcher fish, uh, a lot of pasta demos, which I think is, is probably what we're going to lean into because, um, I can, I can show everybody a basic pasta dough recipe and then show you, you know, six to eight different things that you can do to make handmade pasta in your home. Um, not only is it fun, um, but you know, it, it's unbelievably tasty. So we'll make a couple of pastas together. We'll make some dough together. Uh, and Then we'll take those pastas and we'll turn them into a couple of dishes. Uh, so you have something to eat at the end. Uh, what, what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll probably end up having as many people sign up as possible. I think we can do anywhere from like 15 to 30 people for this demo and just make one, one big Zoom call where you know I just sit there and greet everybody and I'll give you guys the ingredients the day before, but it's going to be super simple. It's going to be like flour, eggs, olive oil, you know, water. We'll, we'll, we'll all learn how to make pasta
0: together and it'll be a good time. Yeah. That's great. Let's aim high. We'll, yeah, we'll shoot for 30 instead of goal for 30 and we'll, we'll definitely get there. Yeah, man. I sounds like a good idea. Well, you're definitely making South Philly proud too uh, by doing pasta. I'm with you on that. <laughs> Love South Philly. never thought I was going to open a restaurant in South Philly, but the first time we saw that we saw the space, I was like, yeah, this
1: is, this is, this is for me. This is my spot. <laughs>
0: Yeah. How did you end up in, in Philadelphia and, and choosing Philadelphia as your stomping grounds? Uh, actually
1: a weird story. My brother went to, uh, UMass Amherst, uh, and his roommate there was from Philadelphia. And, uh, when they graduated, um, his roommate, this is, you know, kids, you know, stupid dudes being 20 years old. Um, his, this this dude, my my brother's friend was the cousin of the drummer of G-Love and Special Sauce so they thought <laughs> they thought that if they came to Philly like they'd be able to hang out and party with the band and shit like that so they got jobs as servers and started hanging out with G-Love and then uh, when I had to do an externship for CIA the culinary school um, I was like, oh, I'll just go check out Philly, and uh, I moved down here, and I loved it. You know, I've been in and out of Philly a ton of times. Uh, I've lived in New York, I've lived in Paris, I've lived in Atlantic City, of all places, but I keep coming back to Philly, and
0: you know, I, I just I love the city, man. Yeah, and you're a pretty big staple in the East Pass Yunk, you know, restaurant scene, and those people are very tight knit community. Um, how does that play into your success?
1: Oh, it's great, man. I mean, especially in the beginning, we've been open for a little over seven years now. Um, when we first opened on East Passion, it wasn't like, uh, it it, it was was starting to get popular, but it wasn't like booming like it is now. Um, so we were lucky. Like we got in with, with relatively inexpensive rent, um, before everybody started coming through and paying tens of thousands of dollars a month to, to have a restaurant down there, which is nice. Um. And, uh, but there's so many restaurants down there in such a small concentrated area. It's cool because we all like, you know, we all help each other out. We all, you know, you need a bunch of chives or you need a pound of butter. You just, you know, text, text somebody down the street. Um, and the best part about the restaurants in East Pass Young, uh, for the most part is like, you know, the chefs who own those restaurants are the chefs who are actually working in those kitchens that day. You know, a lot of restaurants downtown, you know, you get the, you get the bigger name chefs in town and they're not actually at their kitchens a ton. Um, they, you know, you know, you're getting quality because the guy who owns the business is the guy standing in the kitchen or, 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 you know, the woman standing in the kitchen, uh, cooking, uh, and, and, and making the food and making sure everything's perfect. You know, we've had some, we've had some great, great restaurants open and, and unfortunately closed down there in the past couple of years. Um, you know, and, and
0: COVID certainly hasn't helped, but, you know, I'm fully expecting a, 100% bounce back into 2021, which, which will be nice. Yeah, there will definitely be a resurgence in that area. Uh, what, what are your, some of your favorite spots that you like to go to on East Pass, Young? Know? My favorite restaurant was Satay Kampar, um, but that unfortunately
1: closed due to a uh, landlord dispute over this past summer. Um, I definitely loved River Twice, uh, Rival Brothers for Coffee, uh, You know, Vanilla and Essen our two spectacular bakeries down there. Um, You know, it's, it's, we've had some turnover in the past couple of years. Um, So, you know, we've had a couple of bigger restaurants come in. I think they saw the success of all of these little tiny restaurants and now you have bigger restaurants like Barcelona wine bar coming in, you know, we'll see what happens, but um, you know, it's still a great, vibrant neighborhood, especially on the weekends. You know, it's, it's a walking neighborhood. It is, you know, when you, when you come out on a nice spring day or a nice fall day and walk around on a Friday night, it's, you know, hundreds of people out just kind of putzing around looking for something to do. So it's great. Great
0: foot traffic down there. Yeah. Every single time I've gone to one of your restaurants, I definitely spend time at a few others grabbing a drink here or grabbing a snack there.
1: Yeah. I love that. People like to do the walk. Like they'll start at one end of East Pass Yonk. They'll stop somewhere. They'll grab a small bite to eat and a cocktail. They'll move on to another restaurant, same thing, you know what I mean, and keep moving up and down the avenue. It's, it's cool. It's fun. It's it's a lot of diversity in, in the different cuisines that we have down there. It's not just, you know, I don't want people to think that it's just Italian food and just pasta. It's like, no, it's, it's all over the place.
0: We're going to take a break from our interview with Chef Nick, and we turn to a segment where we like to highlight one of our listeners who's been positively impacted by a nonprofit. Today we're highlighting Shek Diawara. He writes, in five or six years that I've been with Focus Athletics, it's been a big part of my life. I watched the program blossom into what it is now organically with no huge billboard promo, no corporate control. Just people who are happy with seeing other people succeed. I literally did my senior internship with Focus because it just felt right to bring everything back full circle. The connections made between the men in this program will transcend beyond time. Thanks for writing in Cech, we're all proud of you and the Focus Athletics Foundation who we highlighted on episode one. And we know how Focus Athletics has been a key part in Chicks' life because he's gone on to get a bachelor's degree in sports administration at Lock Haven University. He's the director of marketing at the Yuma Foundation. He's a freelance graphic designer and is currently an offensive tackle and an MBA candidate at Lake Erie College. If you're a listener out there and you want to share your story about how you have been positively impacted by a nonprofit in your life, we'd love to hear from you. Reach out to the show at altruismunplugged at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Now back to the interview with Chef Nick. the pillars of the program for no kid hungry. And it's been great for me. I've learned a a ton. You know, when you told me that's that, you know, that was your foundation that you like to work with. I spent a lot of time on their website and learned about what they do and the pillars of of their program starts with research and policy. They have a world-class team of analysts, researchers and program managers who take what they've learned and find ways to share it with everybody They also fund and develop pilot programs to uncover effective new ways to feed children. They also use conferences, webinars, research materials, case studies, and online resources that they give leaders across the country to give the tools they need to feed kids. Yeah, man. I mean, we have some great corporate sponsors as well. Like Citibank has always been a huge sponsor of ours,
1: which has been been really great. Um, You know, we've just... Trying to make headway, man. Like I said, the biggest the thing that's the most frustrating thing in the world is that it's a it's a solvable problem. You know, when 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 we go back to figuring out like why there's so much food waste in the world and then why we still have hunger, it's like it's it's so frustrating. It is so frustrating.
0: Yeah. And another way that they use their program is through food skills and education. What they do is they help parents and their children by offering interactive grocery store tours and hands-on cooking classes. And they also have a smartphone app that's all free and all run through trusted local community programs. Have you ever done anything like that with education or food prep classes? Yeah, they actually sent me to Boston for a weekend um, to
1: hang out and kind of uh, was in the north end. I forget where it was. I think it was east west of the north end. Uh, and we were talking about food deserts and we had to go into like the different um, grocery stores in the area and figure out like how we would make a complete meal because, you know, there's a lot, when we talk about food deserts, we talk about places where like you actually can't get fresh food for blocks and blocks and blocks. You know, all you, all you see for blocks and blocks is like convenience stores where all you can get is prepackaged food. You can't get fresh vegetables. You can't get fast fresh food, etc. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of ridiculous. Um, and, and, you know, trying to talk, figure out ways to get around that. Um, but it, you can't convince people to open <laughs> grocery stores in in dilapidated neighborhoods you can't you can't force them to do it but there's got to be a way that we can get fresh food to you know the the children that live in that area you know obviously there are kids that live around there and they they can't get a, they can't get an apple like you got to be shitting me
0: right and obviously once they learn more skills and are able to cook they're going to do it more yeah, yeah absolutely so yeah, it's
1: been pretty eye-opening for me working with them for the past couple of years you know you think about oh i'm gonna do charity i'm gonna raise money i'm gonna do this and it's like yeah but but if you're if you know and you, you know me well enough now like if i'm gonna do something like i'm i'm doing it i'm not like i'm not dipping my toe in you know i want to i want to jump into my, the deep in end right and get my hands dirty you know like so and it's been it's been it's been eye-opening and in a tremendous amount of fun over the past couple of years
0: Right. That's the only way we operate. Got all in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another pillar of their program is school breakfast. And they give educators and lawmakers across the, across the country the guidance and funding they need to make breakfast a part of the regular school day for their students. And an interesting stat they have is in 2018 through 2019, They've helped feed hungry kids an additional 11.5 million nutritious breakfasts in the schools across America from big cities to rural communities and everywhere in between. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, good luck getting me to be productive at all without breakfast.
1: Yeah, but it's it's one of those things where, you know, when we talk about breakfast, especially for kids, it doesn't need to be anything big. It can be a granola bar and an apple. You know, it, it can be a bowl of cereal. And an orange. It's not something that needs to be huge. It's not something that's unbelievably expensive. But you'd be surprised at the amount of kids uh, who who go to school in the morning with, you know, maybe a bag of chips in their belly, you know, maybe a little bit of juice in their belly. And how are you going to learn? How are you going to do anything if you don't have food in you? Like I mean, I can't imagine having. I can't imagine driving to work without something in my stomach before, you know, before noon. You know, I can't I can't imagine having to sit in a school and actually have to try to learn something if I haven't eaten and I don't have the energy
0: to, to stay up for it, you know? Yeah, I'm going to be hangry real quick if I'm not <laughs> i got a full belly. Yeah, man. Yeah, they also they end the school day with after-school meals as well, and they speak a lot about how for most kids, lunch at school may be the last healthy meal they get for the day and in a survey they did in 2017. Almost three out of five low-income parents said that it was difficult to afford food for their kids to eat after school. And they also did a study in Chicago that kids enrolled in after-school programs and summer programs graduated at a rate of ninety-five percent, which is more than double their average rate for that school system. Wow!
1: Yeah, they have so many different facets to their program that it's you know they're 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 really just trying to kind of get their hands around every single city, every single rural area, you know, you know, we think of, for some reason, you know, we think of poverty and we think of cities, you know, but when you go to middle America, you go to the Rust Belt, like poverty is the same thing in, in the farmland as it is out here. You know, it's, people are poor everywhere. You know, it's, it's, it's not just a city problem. It's not just
0: a coastal problem it's 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 an american problem right and they have big city problems with smaller governments they don't have people advocating for them or you know amount of support or or funds going their way exactly the fifth pillar that they have they do on a regular basis is the summer meal program that they have during the summer when schools are closed most of the meals that the kids get from the breakfast and they have their school meals they disappear and in 2018 they helped summer meals sites serve 5.3 million healthy meals to hungry kids during that summer which is a pretty impressive number yeah i mean um you know another thing
1: that i like that they do is they do their free meal map um you know if you go to no kid hungry and 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 type in the free free meal map for kids uh they'll they'll show you a map of your area and Places, schools, and churches in your area that if you need a meal, and if your if your child needs a meal, you can pick up, show up right away, and they'll, they'll get you fed right away. Or if you just text the word "food" to eight seven seven eight seven seven, they'll hit you back up with with where you are and and where you can go. Um, which has been, I mean, it's been an unbelievably useful tool. Over, the, I think we've had it going for like two years now, um, and, and, and you know, you just you. Click on your area, and see if you feel like you can't provide for your children, and, and, and you need to get some food in their belly, you know you go online, you find that map,
0: and and you can just show up and you get your kids fed, which is, you know, it's vital, vitally important. And of course, you know they've been on an extended summer with COVID. A lot of people are virtual, and they don't have those, those institutions that are feeding them on a daily basis. So you know, especially now during COVID, they have you know they have that to reach out to now. And by looking at that map, or or texting that number, and I also saw that they have they have it for Spanish as well. So I think you just type in comida to that same message, and you will find that find those locations where they can get fed and get those free meals. Nice, nice. Uh, the other one is advocacy, like you talked about. You've already done some advocacy for them, but you also have done that for the Philadelphia community, especially during COVID. Uh, do you mind speaking about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, we do what we got to do. Um, in the beginning of the pandemic, uh, you know, the first thing you want to do is you want to shore up your own, shore up your own house. So it was like, all right, you know, how are we going to get the businesses wrapped up? What are we going to do here to make sure that not only you know the restaurant's protected, but I want to make sure my family's safe and in turn myself. Um, you know, But you do that for a month or so, and it's like, all right, how else can we help? Um, fortunately, through the industry, I've met a tremendous amount of really unbelievably generous people through the years. Um, uh, one, one of which, my friend uh, Todd Snyder, um, who decided uh, he, he gets an endowment every year through the Snyder Foundation to donate to charities that he sees fit. And, um, we kind of decided, uh, he reached out to me like, Hey, what can I do for the restaurant community? Um, if I have some extra money to kick around, like what should happen? And we started pushing some ideas around. And, uh, what we came up with is we, we set up a $150,000 fund for, uh, people who live in Philadelphia proper and work in the restaurant industry. And they were $500 grants that you can go online and fill out. And just all you had to do is prove that you worked in a restaurant and are now unemployed. And you would get a $500 grant to go buy food for yourself through, you know, and that happened very quickly within a month of uh, the pandemic happening. So, you know, you can imagine how many people are out of work in Philadelphia um, with everything closed. I'll tell you that, uh, you know, through uh, in Pennsylvania alone, there are at minimum 580,000 people who work in the restaurant industry. Um, so, you know, it's, and all those people are out of work. Nobody had a job like, like that snap, snap your fingers and, and 500, 8,000 people are out of work. And that's, that's only restaurant industry. I mean, can you, can
0: imagine across the board, how many people were laid off? Um, right. You know, and, and at that time they're, everybody's logging on and trying to get their, you know, their state stipend and and it's not coming. And it's yeah. Like, everyone's they're trying they're to get coming.
1: unemployment. Everyone's trying to get their stipend, you know, on top of that, you know we are an industry that is propped up by immigrants. Um, and it's, it makes it difficult, you know, when we have, you know, such a large influx of immigrants who live in Philadelphia who work and support our restaurant industry. And all of a sudden, not only are they unemployed, but they can't file for unemployment. And it, it was kind of brutal. You should have seen, I mean, I'm sure you saw the soup kitchen lines in, in Philadelphia through March, April, and May. It was brutal. It was brutal to watch. So it was nice to be able to get that out there. Uh, we also did say Philly eats, um, where we raised money for for my staff, which was great. We auctioned off a bunch of dinners uh, that I cooked throughout the summer. All that money went – we raised $54,000 for my staff. Um, All that money went directly to the staff so they can, you know, while they're all waiting for unemployment to happen, you know, they had a couple thousand dollars to at least get them through. Um, And then uh, what was the other one we did? We did one more – I forget. There's another one where we sold T-shirts, and all that money went into a pot, and that money got distributed to restaurant workers throughout the city. I and mean, we just kept doing it, man. You know, it's like, and people who work in the restaurant industry know, like, you can't stop. You know, you 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 can take a break once in a while, but you never stop thinking about food. You never stop thinking about feeding people. Um, a lot of our restaurants, you know, started jumping on the uh, the bandwagon of, you know, we were making money. We were making um, we were making food for hospital workers as well. Um, you know, packaged up sausage sandwiches and stuff for Jefferson or for New Penn or wherever we had to go. You know what I mean? We would just make sure that the hosp- people who were working in the hospitals felt appreciated, um, doing whatever we could and, you know, it's just keep going, you know, it's just keep plugging away at it. And, if, if, and we were obviously in a much better spot now. Um, you know, unfortunately, like I said, with No Kid Hungry, like we didn't get to have our, have our big event last year. Um, a lot of charities are struggling right now because, you know, being able to have events and raise money is, is is the way we keep these charities going. And and we haven't been able to for, for almost a year now. Um, and we don't know when we're going to be able to again. So if, if, if you have any disposable income and, and, and you're feeling good and you want to get out there, you know, donate. Find your favorite charity. Find something that's true to your heart. Find something that you believe in and, and, and donate some money, you know.
0: Yeah, or you know, volunteer your time. Volunteer the your There's time a lot again. of people that are, you know, that can't go out and volunteer because of whatever reason, whether it be they're immunocompromised or they live with a elder family member. So, you know, if you're young and spry and inspired, man, go out there and do it.
1: Yeah, if you don't have cash and you still want to donate, your your time is more valuable. You know, get out there. Get out there and do something. Yes,
0: yeah, sir. Yeah, and I'm sure you're a staff member, your your staff and, and the staff across restaurant workers across Philadelphia, you know, have gr- benefited greatly from your guys efforts. And, you know, it's very easy to back somebody and follow someone as a leader of a restaurant when everything's going great. Right. But yeah. when, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, it's easy, you know, oh, Nick's great. You know, you know, he treats us really well and you know, when everything's going perfect, but how's he going to act when, when everything hits the fan, you know, and you know, your true, your true nature comes to light when, when things are going rough, man. And, and yours, you know, clearly shined. Yeah, man all that you know mental
1: training never never lay down always get up always keep fighting you know there's no reason to lay down there's no reason to give up you know there's always something to do there's always something you can improve on you know whether it's your work or your personal life or you know family relationships there's always something you can do and it's nice to take a rest once in a while but i'm the type of person like i got i got to keep going i got to keep motoring i'm not gonna i'm not gonna sit back you know i I love what the work i've done I love the work I've done in the restaurants. I love that we have all of the accolades and we have the awards and stuff. But it's like, you know, we're going to continue to get better. You know, if we weren't trying to
0: get better, then it'd just be boring. Life would be boring if you weren't trying to better yourself every day. Right. And it's of course, it's very hard to get there, but it's even harder to stay there. If you look at any championship fighter or Super Bowl, you know, contender, you know, it's, it's very easy. You know, it's hard to get there, but to repeat and to stay there is even more challenging.
1: No, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, we've been, we've been kicking ass for seven years now and it's been, it's been a lot of fun. Um, You know, we've, we've, we've had a tremendous amount of fun, but you know, now it, now my position is, is like, okay, like I'm good at my job. My, my, my new goal is to make as many people that work for me as good as I am. You know, I want, I want everybody who works for me to understand that like, you know, if you're going to come work for me by the time you leave, like you're going to be ready to own your own restaurant. You're going to be ready to be a chef. You know, I don't, I don't, I'm not taking in people who don't take it seriously. And, and, and they all know that they come in, we ready to work. They come in knowing that like, we're, we're not, we're not here to just come in and do our job. We're here to attack the day. We're, we're here to come in. We're, we're going to kick ass. We're going to have a lot of fun doing it. We're going to cook spectacular food. We're going to be creative. We're going to exchange ideas. We're going to help each other. And we're all just going to get better together because, you know, down the road, um, you know, my cooks are always going to be, you know, 20 to 35 years old. You know, eventually they're going to get older and they're going to go off and do their own thing. And when they go off and do their own thing, you know, you want them, you want to be proud of them. You know, so the amount of effort I put into them, the amount of work and amount of teaching I put into them, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get that back.
0: It's, it's, you know, start building that tree. Right. And when they see every single person that works within your staff from the person and, and you guys taking pride from the way that you fold the napkins to... You know, your presentation on the plates. You know there's no way that they're not going to succeed and 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 conform to that positive mentality and that that hard work and that effort.
1: But it's also getting them to believe that folding the napkin is as important as putting the food on the plate. You know every single aspect of uh, a, a restaurant experience is as important as the next. You know you, you have the, the you know perfectly written menus with you know personalized and bathroom better be spotless your, your apron has to be spotless the food has to be perfect it has to be seasoned like we, we we talk about a black and white world in the kitchen because we want it to be 100 percent right or we are not doing it if it is if it is one degree off and it, it
0: doesn't count we have to start over again you know and I mean? i'm not i'm not kidding you when my girlfriend hears this she's gonna she's gonna die <laughs> yeah, we we were there on New Year's Eve. You know, we celebrated New Year's Eve with you one year, maybe mm-hmm. going into 2019, maybe. I think so. Yeah. And she comes out. She goes, "Oh my God, he has the best smelling bathroom <laughs> I've ever been in."
1: Yeah, man. Everything's important. Like, we thought about
0: we thought about stealing your candle. Like there I was going to jack it. You know, you like go. so we might have to you know get that secret.
1: It's all right, but you know, it's 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 all the little things. But all those
0: little things that add up,
1: you know what I mean, to be something great. And and that's what we try to make sure that everybody understands. It comes through the restaurant. It's like all the little things that we do. Like, if you don't think here it's important, then you don't belong here. You don't belong working with us, man.
0: Yeah, I'm really interested to kind of hear what what kind of preparation it takes to get ready for a night at one of your restaurants. Can you talk a little bit about that and well, how long it, it takes it's and what interesting
1: you do? now because we're 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 gearing up to get open again, um, which is like the hardest part. You know, th- what's been happening through COVID is we can open the restaurants, you have to close the restaurants. You can open the restaurants, you have to close the restaurants. It's like. Every single time we close, it's a it's a pretty heavy lift to get it back open again. It doesn't just it doesn't just happen. You know, when we close a restaurant, if we're not perfect in the way we ordered everything, we're left with a ton of food. And that costs money. So that's money that either goes in the trash or we just give it to the staff so they can take it home. And then when we have to start up again, we have to rebuy everything. And it's not just it doesn't just happen. It doesn't just start like Uh, it takes us probably a week and a half to two weeks just to get reopened. And that means cleaning, prepping, cooking, organizing, getting all of our stuff together, getting all of our ducks in a row, firing up all of our systems again, inventorying everything again. It's like, all right, it's like opening a new restaurant again, and this is going to be the third time we've done it. And just, uh, it's, it's kind of brutal. Um, but now we're, I think, I think we're at a good point where we feel like we're, we're comfortable doing it. but like, yeah, normal day at the restaurant, people start filtering in at about 10 o'clock in the morning. Everybody's there by noon. I don't have a strict end time for anybody. My, my philosophy is, you know, get your job done. You better, be, you better be done and ready by five o'clock. I don't care if you show up at 4.30. If your job is done and you're, you're good at your job and everything's perfect by five, it doesn't bother me, but it's, it's on you. Uh, I'm, I'm not a huge micromanager. Um, I, you know, set the expectations and let people go. But, you know, some people come in at 10 because they have to get sauces going or they have to get some pastry going or they have to get, you know, bread rising. And some people come in at 1. You know, you come in at 1 one day, you'll come in at 11 the next day. Um, But there's a lot of moving pieces. We have uh, pretty set things that happen every week. We do – we're pretty stagnant in the amount of people that we can do. Um, so we know going into a week, Oh, we're going to do 160 people this week. So we can order X, you know, but if we order, I don't know, 160 people means we need to order 50 trout. Those 50 trout are all coming in at the same time because our trout hatchery only delivers one day a week. So when those trout come in, like you are cleaning and heading and gutting and hanging and salting trout for like four hours straight. Um, you know, it's always like big projects and we're, and we're a very seasonal restaurant as well, especially through the the spring when everything is like popping, you know, when, when rhubarb start starts and, you know, the best rhubarb is right at the beginning of the season, you know, we'll get a hundred pounds of rhubarb and preserve and pickle it. You know, the bamboo shoots are, are perfect before they actually burst through the ground when they're like little sprouts. So at the beginning of bamboo season, which is like early May, you know, we'll get a hundred, 150 pounds of bamboo and we will clean bamboo for a day or two straight and just like clean and ferment bamboo. There's always a lot of long projects like that going on. Um, And then the front of the house staff gets in at like three and they're cleaning and polishing and dusting and changing light bulbs. And every day, every day it's over and over and over and over again. And when service starts, it's like service is the fun part, like prepping all day, organizing all day, receiving orders, butchering, that's the tough part of the job. That's like when you have to really, really bust your ass. You really have to move. You really have to be organized. You really have to focus. Once service starts, it's like you should be done. You should just be able to cruise, get through service, cook, smile at a couple people, give them some good food, give them some good wine, make sure you're in a good mood. Everybody's happy and that's it. You know, it's like that's the smoothest, funnest part of the day. Funnest. That's not a word.
0: I don't know if it's a word. Don't ask, me. don't ask me if it's a word. Yeah, I was trying to figure out what charcuterie was, you know, before we started this here podcast. Cold cuts. So, cold, cold cuts. cuts. Yeah. In South Philly, we call it cold cuts. Cold cuts. Yeah, You know, so I guess it's, it's a, you know, it's almost like, you know, your preparation phase before getting everybody in, getting the orders done is like your training and then You know, the food service is like, you know, your competition. You just kind of show what you work for. Yeah, 100%. 100% where you you kind of spread out a little bit and you show off what you know. Nice. and You know, of course, we see that success now. You have your restaurants. You have your recipe books. And you've built up this group of people that all give back. But, of course, the path to get there wasn't without resistance or, or failures along the way. Can you just give us a little glimpse into how you got here?
1: Yeah, I mean, I grew up in um, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire. I started cooking uh, by accident. I got a job as a busboy when I was 14 because uh, I wanted to start saving money so I can buy a car. And I was terrible at it. Um, so they made me a dishwasher. And uh, I was just fortunate enough that one day, uh, you know, the pizza guy didn't show up. And they kind of came into the kitchen and were like, yo, you ever make a pizza before? Was like, nope. All right, we're going to show you how you got to make pizzas tonight, and that's it. That's how I started cooking. I fell in love with it. I thought it was amazing. It was a ton of fun. I learned how to make really great pizzas, and then they moved me over to the line. I started working on a Garmerget station. I started working a pasta station. We made all of our own pastas by hand. Started working grill. You know, by the time I was 16 years old, it was like I can work every single station in in this kitchen. <clears throat> and I was working alongside guys that you know been working for. 20 years cooking for 20 years and i was just kind of like cruising it's one of those things where it's like i just got lucky you know what i mean i found something that not only did i like it but like i was naturally good at cooking i was was naturally like i was like oh i get this like oh this is this is cool i understand this you know it's, it's funny when you find those things like that and you're just like holy shit like i find that i find that i'm very fortunate that every day i get to go to work and i actually like my job i i can't imagine how many people out there don't actually like what they're doing but like i love going to work i love cooking for people i love talking to people in the dining room i love butchering i love everything that happens when it, when it evolved evolving around food um but then you know as I, as i continued to cook through my teenage years you know i started getting ready to go to college and I don't think I really understood at the time that like you could make a living out of it you know I always thought of it as like you know because I grew up and I'm 14 15 years old cooking cooking alongside you know people who are 30 years old and I'm like yeah that's what you do I don't want to be a 30 year old line cook I didn't really think about like getting into being a chef and owning restaurants at that time um, but I did a I did a year no, two years of college and I went for economics and accounting and I wasn't a big fan of it and I had met somebody who went to Culinary Institute of America and I had no clue what it was. And I went to visit one time and I looked up, I looked at it and it's like, it's like a legit college. It's a beautiful campus. It's a big campus. Um, it had a very collegiate feel to it. I was like, yeah, I can do this. This will be fun. And, uh, and it was, it was a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun at culinary Institute of America. <clears throat> I was happy to go back uh, two years ago and I got to do a commencement speech um, and become an ambassador for the school, which is great. Um, but I, when I graduated school is when I moved to Philly uh, to live with my brother. And I started working for a gentleman named George Perrier. Um, and we've had a, we, we've had a, a tumultuous relationship. I worked for him off and on for like 13 years. I think I quit four times and I'm pretty sure he fired me three times. Um, but it's the type of situation <laughs> where like we'd be in the middle of service and he'd be like, you know, he'd go off on one of his, his rants and he'd yell and swear at me and he'd, Tell me I'd fired, I'm fired and kick me out. And I'd be like, I'm not leaving. Like I'm in the middle of service. Like I'm cooking food right now. I'm not walking away from my station. So I'd just continue cooking. And then, you know, I'd go home and my wife would be like, What happened? I'd be like, I got fired again today. <laughs>
0: She's like, Yeah. You going back to work tomorrow? I'm like, Yeah, I'm going back to work tomorrow. What are you talking about? I'll just show up the next day and start working again. Yeah, I feel like you won. You quit four times. He only fired you three Exactly.
1: Or yeah, I'd be like at the end of the service, I'd be like, Listen, I can't deal with you anymore. I quit. He'd be like, yeah, you can't quit. You're fired. I'm like, all right, fine. I'm fired, and I go home. And I'd be like, ah, shit. I gotta, you know, what's the, the, you know, the the Smiths are coming in tomorrow night. I can't, I can't quit tonight. I gotta, I gotta wait till the end of tomorrow's service because I gotta. It's cook like working
0: the, with your dad. I know. It's like
1: I gotta cook for the Smiths, or no one's gonna be. No one knows going to how to do that stuff. So, so I go back to NERC the next day. He's just, you know, I, unfortunately, you know, I was loyal to a fault. He was, he he was good to me in in many ways, but he was also he wasn't the best example of a chef you know he was he was rude he was crass he treated the staff like shit um he's physically abusive to people He was mentally abusive to people and we kind of just like grit and bared through it Uh, but when we came out on the other side i was like man i never want to be like that like when i had to open up my own restaurant i was like all i want to do is be the opposite of that so you know we want to have like a very encouraging environment you know, I think that you can get just as much out of people by encouraging them and showing them and teaching them and, and helping them as you can by scaring them probably more. Um, and it's and it's worked out really well. Like we have an environment where people actually enjoy working with each other. There's no like, I mean, it's not that people don't get in fights, but like there are little tiny arguments and uh, where, you know, at Lebeck Finn, people would be getting like fist fights in the kitchen. <laughs> it was brutal. Um you know, I worked for Chef for off and on for 13 years. I opened up his restaurant in Atlantic City uh, at Caesars. I was his chef de cuisine at his restaurant called Brasserie Perrier. Then he made me the executive chef of Lebec Finn. Um, he had sold the restaurant. Oh, well, he tried closing it a bunch of times. There's actually a documentary about it. Um, that's kind of like a – there's a document. There's a woman from Narbirth who worked for uh, National Geographic – who started filming a documentary about Lebec Finn and how we were trying to close Lebec Finn. And it, it just kept going on and going on. And then the documentary ended up just kind of being about like my, mine and chef Ferrier's relationship. It's actually, it's actually a pretty cool documentary. It was on, it was on Hulu for a while. I think it's still on Amazon prime. It's called King George, King George. Yeah. Um, but after, after Lebec Finn, I opened up a restaurant called Rittenhouse Tavern. Um, which was kind of like the first corporate job I took. It was like, I have a wife and two kids. I need a job. And, uh, it was fun. It was a new restaurant. It was exciting. Um, but it was like, you know, elevated burgers and, you know, nice, nice, nice tavern food. Um, and then I had the opportunity to go on top chef, which was cool. It was a cool experience. One of my buddies was on with me, Jason a good dude. Um, met some really spectacular chefs on the show I ended up doing really terrible through the first part of the show and somehow managed to make it to the finals. And by the time I got to the finals, I was like, I just, I don't know what happened. I just kind of flipped the switch and uh, started cruising and, uh, you know, took home, took home, took home the win, which was nice because I I quit my job to go shoot the show. Uh, So I was out of work for like six months. So the... The paycheck at the end kind of, kind of helped out. <laughs> um, and then after that, yeah, I opened Laurel. Laurel was great. You know, three years later we opened in the Valley, uh, which is right next door to Laurel. And then, uh, a year after that, we opened, um, Royal Boucherie. Uh, now this year, uh, I've done some consulting along the way as well. I opened up a restaurant at the airport called Baba Bar. Uh, I've helped some people, helped some friends out. And now this year we're opening two restaurants in Ballakinwood. uh, lark in the landing which should be like spring you know april-ish of uh, of this year um you know just want to keep moving man um i want to get into the position where like you know I'm, I'm starting to get up there uh i i don't want to be behind the stoves every day i want to be teaching i want to be encouraging i want to be mentoring um, i want to be developing you know i want to get a bunch of projects going so i can i can bring on new staff i can train and teach people and give them, give them their own business and then move on and
0: start a, start another project, you know? Yeah. We clearly have the work ethic required to reach that level and, and, and acquire those goals and reach them. Just got to keep working. Can't stop. You also got, you got into the donut game too. And during COVID too as well. Didn't you?
1: <clears throat> yeah. I mean, we were looking for things to do to transition and continue uh, making a little bit of money. You know, this year has been about not even about making money, but surviving. You know, how do we how do we make enough money to get the restaurants to survive 2020? Um, you know, one of the things that we did, my, my buddy owns a company called uh, Curiosity Donuts. Uh, I've been trying to get him to open a donut shop in Philly for about five years now. And, uh, you know, I've 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 worked with him at his shop a couple of times just because I love what he does. Um, and he came up with the idea like, hey, like if you're not using the bar right now, why don't we why don't we turn it to a donut shop? I was like, all right, I'm interested in this. Let me, let me come and hang out with you for a couple of days at your donut shop and see what it takes and see if I can do it and make sure that it's it's going to be right. I'm like, okay, <clears throat> we started doing it. And I'm like, I'm telling you, man, these donuts are no joke. Uh, they're, they're spectacular donuts, uh, but they are very difficult to make. <laughs> um,
0: you are waking up at what, like three in the morning,
1: three 30 in the morning. And, uh. At work, at work at four, <clears throat> you know, we would work from four in the morning until about noon or one, um, just messes with you. It messes with your brain being up that early. Um, but yeah, we, I mean, we ended up working like 60, 65 hours a week, me, me and one of my other chefs, uh, just to make like 1500 donuts. Um, it was, it was, it was a lot. You know, I think that, uh, we, we closed the shop cause we want to get the restaurants reopened, um but it was great. I mean, we did it all through December. We did it all through January. We had a lot of fun doing it. Um, you know, it kept the, kept the business alive. It kept Philly happy because, you know, donuts make everybody happy. And, um, you know, I think we're going to, we're going to, we're going to shelve it right now and then revisit it at some point this summer and figure out a way to get a couple of uh, brick and mortar shops open, um, in Philly. Cause I, I think that, you know, good donuts are, are universal. Um, You know, I'm I'm interested in finding more things like that. Like, you know, Laurel is a a wonderful restaurant and I I love working there. I love the intensity of that place. But Laurel is for, what, 5% of the population? You know, not a lot of people get it not a lot of people understand what we're trying to accomplish and I'm fine with that. It's a subjective field. It doesn't bother me, but you know, donuts, donuts are universal. Like everybody loves donuts. Who doesn't like a good donut? You know, like I, I want to find more things like that, where it's like, we're going to take something that is universally liked and we're going to figure out a way to make it better.
0: Yeah, definitely. I was able to grab a few of those on Christmas Eve. You let me, uh, jump in line and, yeah, don't and, and, tell anybody, in there and grab a few, don't tell people you got special treatment. I'm gonna get yeah. To you. When you when you show up with the fire department gear on, you kind of <laughs> get to you know. Yeah, I was there early too. There was no one there at the time, so oh, I got there early. So they good. just saw me walking out with them, and and you know they knew what was up. They I felt like going on. Yeah, I felt like good fellas walking through the kitchen. You know?
1: <laughs> yeah, but I mean we don't open till eight. You know, people would be lining up at six thirty, six forty five in the morning. We had people out front with like lawn chairs, like they're tailgating. Just to get donuts they, they would wait an hour before we opened just to get donuts and it was uh it was nuts we we physically couldn't make enough donuts and we 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 sold out of donuts every single day that we were open um and alex and i were killing ourselves trying to make all right all right this week we made 600 donuts for every day it's like oh shit it's not enough let's make 650 it's like shit it's not enough let's make 700 <laughs> it's like damn man guys people are crazy but, I mean, it's just, you know, we were doing kind of a market test, and I think it, it was successful. So, we'll figure out a way to bring good
0: donuts to Philly in the future. Yeah, I, I showed up there, and I definitely earned on my spot. I got there early, but I, I was ready for a fight, man. People were, were <laughs> clamoring for these these beautiful circles of joy. Right, right. It's nice, though. It's good. It was, it was a fun project. Yeah, they were out of control. They were tasty. Also I gotta I gotta thank uh, you know, Bob and, and, and Mech Peach for dropping some off to myself and, and the fellows at Ladder twenty seven at the firehouse. That was definitely that was that was great.
1: Yeah, he he was he I think he was in line every weekend for the first
0: three weeks. Yeah, definitely thanks to those guys. Really appreciate it. Um you know, you've been in the game for years and have a lot of success in a lot of different areas. Do you have any advice or guidance for aspiring chefs that are kind of new to the game or coming up?
1: Uh, you know, after After what we just talked about, I would say choose your mentors wisely. Um, Make sure that the person that you're going to learn from, their values align with your values. Also, I think the most important thing for a chef is culture. So travel as much as you can. Don't, you know, if you're from Massachusetts, don't go cook in Boston. You know, go Go cook in San Francisco, go cook in Chicago, go cook in Florida, go see if you can, you know, save some money and, and travel to Europe, tra- travel to Southeast Asia, get it, get out of here. You know what I mean? Like people get so closed off and, and so uh, fixated on what's around them. It's like, they forget that there's like a huge world out there and you can learn the best part about food is like, no matter where you are, no matter how old you are, no matter how much you know about food, there's always something. So there's a, there's something else. There's something else you can learn there's something else you can add to your inventory there's something else you can add to your repertoire uh, if, if if you have a thirst for for knowledge it's a great field
0: to be in because you'll you'll always be getting better if, if you so choose to you know and of course that's that's good advice for anybody aspiring to be anything you know if you want to be you know the best at something or or be successful you know that's good advice for anybody I think that the the
1: thirst for knowledge has always been like I, I, it hasn't always been in me until, and even when I started getting into cooking, like I was like, Oh, I like, I like cooking because I'm good at it, you know what I mean? I'm good at something, like why wouldn't I like it? I didn't actually like love cooking until I was probably in my mid-20s when not only was I good at it, but I was like, I was digging into it. I was really, really, really trying to figure out how to get better, really trying to figure out like, all right, if I'm going to do this, like how do I become the best? You know, there's, there's no way to gauge you know, like I said, we're in a subjective field. No one's ever the best in this, at this job. You know, there's, there's, there's different levels. Um, But you you can always continue to get better and you can always continue to bring people along with you. And that's been the fun part is like the connections you make, the relationships you make throughout the years. It's like, you know, these are people I'm going to know for the rest of my life just because we got a chance to
0: work together. Yeah. And success is how you define it. Right. So, you know, when you were, in your mid twenties success might be different than it is when you're in your mid thirties and might be different 10 years from now. So, you know, you're always there trying to retool it and, and redefine what that is. Yeah. I keep coming up with a new five-year plan
1: every year. You know, it's like okay. de- de- define what your goals are and it's, there's no, there it's, it sounds silly, but write them down somewhere, right? Like talk about your goals openly with the people that you love and what you want to do and what you're going to accomplish. But
0: talking about it and figuring out a, out a way to do it, two completely different things. Yeah. I, and I spoke with you actually early on about this podcast and, and through speaking to you at Open Doors that I never thought were even going to be open and it's taking it to a level higher than I thought it was going to. So I definitely agree that speaking about your goals and not being afraid to do that will, you know, can benefit for sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, meet good people, good people, introduce you to more good people. Yeah, you, you're definitely the company that you keep for sure. You know, actually, something I also like to do on top of writing my goals down, I do an exercise focused on daily gratitude. And I like to do that every single episode that we have here with the podcast. Um, You know, regardless of whatever I have going on that day, it definitely leaves me with a better disposition. Um, So for me, my gratitude for today, you know, since I have you on and we spoke so much about cooking. You know, my gratitude is aimed today and focused on um, the relationship I have with cooking now. You know, I've always been into nutrition, you know, as, per, as part of my life because of my job that I have and, and how I like to stay in good shape and enjoy myself that way. But that always didn't include great tasting food, it included like sweet potatoes and chicken you know, every single day, you know, like bodybuilding diet. And now I'm eating arugula salads with, you know, vinaigrette and feta and watermelon and, you know, having spaghetti squash with chicken sausage and mozzarella, you know? So, you know, and and what, what gave that to me was my girlfriend, Christine, um, you know, she is a fantastic cook. I always tell her that she should start a blog or you know, maybe open up her own restaurant one day. We'll see if she ever does. But, um, you know, one of my favorite things to do is throw on one of my old man's records and, you know, hop in the kitchen, you know, make a new recipe with her and, uh, and make something delicious. So, you know, that's where my gratitude is for today. Uh, Nick, if you, you're more than welcome to jump in, if, if you want to. Yeah, know, man, absolutely. Speak. Like, I think, I think as always, um,
1: and my gratitude goes towards my relationship with my wife. Like we've been together for, it'd be 16 years now. Uh, we've only been married for 12 of those, but, you know, she continues to push me every day. Um, not only to be a better person, but to be a better dad, uh, to be a better boss, to be a better chef. Um, she allows me to do what I do. She always rolls with the punches. You know, she's had a tough year with, uh, with COVID as well you know she's one of those that got furloughed because you know she's an event event planning and um there's no events right now can't get people together so she's got nothing to do but she's the first one to jump in and be like all right how do i help the restaurants she started doing the flowers all through uh you know, flowers at the restaurant all through the summer. She was helping out with the accounting. She would go in and on, you know, random days and she'd be like, All right, I'm gonna go in today and reorganize the basement or I'm gonna scrub down the bathrooms and repaint them. And it's like, you know, she's constantly moving on top of taking care of all of us, taking care of the kids, taking care of three cats and a dog now. Like she's constantly moving, constantly doing stuff and and I love it. You know what I mean? She's just one of those people where it's like she's she's amazing to be around. She's fun to be around. She always has a positive attitude. And it's always like I don't know. It's, it, she always resets me, you know, it's whenever I'm upset or whether I'm, I'm angry or I feel flustered or I I'm, or I'm, don't know what to do about, you know, a, a employee situation or a business situation. I just kind of hang out and talk with her and it just kind of settles my nerves, calms me down and, and, and allows me to make a, a clear decision. And uh, she's always kind of been my guiding light. So I'm, I'm unbelievably and undyingly grateful to that woman
0: absolutely respect to both of our better halves there. We're uh, definitely both better men for, for being with them. And, uh, you know, it's great to, you know, get that stuff out there and let them know, you know well, where yeah. we stand. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I know I'm not easy to deal with, so <laughs> oh, I'm sure I'm a pain in the ass. <laughs> she goes, she goes the extra mile. Yeah. My bathrooms don't smell as good as uh, yours. So, uh, <laughs> you know, she's got to deal with that too. Uh, That's a problem. I'll give you some secrets. Yeah, man. Uh, To finish the show, I wanted to add a little bit more on about what I learned while I was on the No Kid Hungry website. Um, According to the USDA, more than 11 million children in the United States live in food-secure, insecure homes, meaning that those households don't have enough food for every family member to lead a healthy life. In 2018, the federal poverty level was 25,750 for a family of four. And families making twice as much are still considered low income by most experts and struggle to make ends meet. Over 12% of Americans, according to 2018 data from the US Census Bureau, live in poverty, and that includes 15 million children. You know, so I definitely wanna thank Nick for shining a light on that foundation. Not only for the listeners, but for myself. It definitely puts some things in perspective. Yeah, man. And that's all the time we have for today. I can't thank everyone enough for listening to the Altruism Unplugged podcast. If you haven't done so already, follow us on social media and share this episode. And subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. I want to thank Chef Nick and everyone who donates to No Kid Hungry for living the altruistic lifestyle. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.